Outside the United Nations headquarters in New York City, this wall on the screen stands as a reminder of the motivation behind the UN to end war. And it's inscribed with words from Isaiah, and that's Isaiah the prophet from the Bible. Specifically, it's taken from Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We're going to take a closer look at the United Nations tonight and at the state of our world. We're going to look at whether or not the United Nations can succeed at their goal in resolving conflict and war in this world. And we'll look at what does God's word have to say about that and whether or not that will happen. Now to start, we have to look at the history of the UN. The United Nations is an organization made up today of 193 countries with several councils and sub-organizations dedicated to specific focus areas. The UN as we know it today started in 1945, officially, although its roots go back a bit further. At the end of World War I, an organization called the League of Nations was created in 1919. And its goal was, as they say, to promote international cooperation and to achieve peace and security. And the building on the screen was constructed in the 1930s to be the headquarters of the League of Nations in Geneva, Switzerland. Now it is an office of the United Nations. Now when the League of Nations was first formed, the world at that time was thinking about the four years previous. They did not want a repeat of the years they had just gone through in World War I. And see, the first world war was originally called the Great War, or the war to end all wars, because it was such a horrific experience that nobody believed something like that could ever happen again, and they wanted to take steps to prevent it. But despite its best efforts, the League of Nations we know from history was not able to prevent a second world war, which proved to be even more catastrophic than the first. So at the end of World War II, they tried again. Countries joined together, and they formed the United Nations. And the UN Charter was officially signed on June 26, 1945, at the San Francisco Conference, and then ratified by the majority of signatory nations on October 24th of 1945. October 24th has now become known as United Nations Day, celebrating that event. So the UN has been in existence for over 75 years now. And truly, they do have noble ambitions. They describe their work by breaking it down into the five key areas that you see on the screen. To protect human rights, to deliver humanitarian aid, to support sustainable development and climate action, to uphold international law, and to maintain international peace and security. And they have made tremendous progress in some areas. For example, through the UN's Water for Life International Decade for Action program from 2005 to 2015, they helped around 1.3 billion people in developing countries gain access to safe drinking water. And you might also look to the fact that there has not been a World War III as another sign of success of the UN. 
but they have not been able to fulfill their founding mission of preventing war and conflict completely. And we have to think, why is that? Well, what are the primary causes of war? Let's consider a couple examples. We mentioned World War II. This, as we know, was driven by the desire of the Nazis to enforce their ideology and their authority over others, their belief that they were a superior race and that they wanted to then set apart to destroy a lot of other races that they felt were inferior. And so they, they set about conquering Europe and they implemented their program of genocide. And eventually they were defeated by the allied powers that resisted them. Something more recent, we can think of the civil war in Syria. Why did that start? Well, the primary cause of that, which has been raging for 10 years now, we think back, it's been already 10 years that that war has been going on. The people of Syria wanted to overthrow the dictator and establish a different government, and so they rebelled against him. But we've seen that that rebellion has proven to be unsuccessful as the Assad regime has been able to assert control again over Syria, particularly with the help of Russia. Other wars we can see through history may be fought for control over natural resources. Other wars are fought with religious motivation. We can think of the Crusades that happened many years ago. There are lots of different causes for particular wars. And as our brother mentioned earlier, there are many wars and conflicts that are still happening today. This map shows the armed conflicts ranked by the number of deaths caused in the year 2020. As we mentioned, the Syrian civil war continues. The estimates of casualties from that war range in the area of 400 to 600,000 casualties, including 20,000 children. The deaths from the civil war in Yemen, you can see one of the, the dark red spots in the center of the map between the Houthi rebels and the Yemen government has been estimated at more than 230,000 total with a very high amount coming in the last year. And more than half of the deaths caused by that particular conflict have not come from combat but have come from indirect results of it like starvation or lack of available health care. There was the fighting between the Russian-backed separatists and the Ukraine, which started in 2014 and is still going on. That's claimed over 13,000 lives since it started. Just in the last year, there was the very short war that erupted between Azerbaijan and Armenia that took between five and 7,000 lives in only about six weeks. And that's just a few. You can see how many are on the map. Recently in the news, we've read about the coup in Myanmar. There's been civil war in Libya. India and Pakistan always seem to be on the brink of war. Afghanistan, you can see another dark red. That saw the most deaths by war in 2020, even as the US is now preparing to withdraw their troops from that area. And the Taliban and their supporters are pledging to continue that war. And closer to home, within North America, we can see Mexico and the violence related to the drug trade there. We see headlines every day about conflict somewhere in the world. War has become a fact of life in this world. The United States spent over $700 billion on military funding in 2019, far more than any other nation you can see there. 
Globally, almost $2 trillion are spent by nations on the military. Think of how much that could accomplish if all of that was spent instead on renewable energy or fighting poverty. But even with the United Nations having the specific goal to try to prevent war, countries continue to prepare for it. Why is that? The real root problem is sin. Sin is disobedience to God's commands. And it's broken down into three areas, three categories in 1 John 2, verse 16. We read, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The New English translation says it this way, Because all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, and the desire of the eyes, and the arrogance produced by material possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. James connects lust and war in James 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Here James is using the imagery of war to describe the conditions within the believers of his time, driven by lust. He uses that description because it's just so true that mankind fights wars based on lust. They desire, they desire natural resources, they desire land to occupy, the pride of ruling over others and forcing your will and ideology upon them. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is the root of all evil. The world is driven by greed, by lust. Men wanting more than they need, more than others, more than anyone else. They want to have power over others and be able to increase their own wealth more and more at the expense of others. So while the United Nations wants to stop wars from happening... They don't acknowledge that the reason they happen is because of the sinful condition of mankind, driven by greed and lust. You can't stop war from happening while mankind continues to be prone to sin. Jesus talks about the condition of man in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. He said, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These things come forth from the heart of man. And Jeremiah describes our hearts this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We deceive ourselves and others because we're constantly motivated to please only ourselves, to fulfill our lusts and desires at the expense of others. This is why nations continue to prepare for war. There is no trust between them. There is always deceit. Imagine if the U.S. suddenly announced that they were going to 
cancel all of the $700 billion in military funding. They were going to withdraw all of their 200,000 deployed troops around the world, bring them back to the U.S., and no longer engage in any sort of combat activities. First, would anyone believe them if they were to announce that? And if they did go through with it, do we think that other nations would follow after that pattern? No, they would take advantage of that fact, and they would use that situation for their own gain. Perhaps some countries would now start wars without the threat of the U.S. getting involved. That's the whole concept of nuclear deterrence. It's built on this principle that there's no trust between people. One nation has nuclear weapons, and nobody trusts them, so other nations have nuclear weapons as well, so they're a deterrent to one another. They won't attack each other because they know that if they did, it would result in complete destruction of both powers. But they don't trust anyone to have those weapons on their own. There's no trust between nations. And why should there be? Because we see from even just the past administration in the U.S., consider how easy it is for nations to renege on deals, on treaties, to go back on their word. The U.N. and individual nations, they use treaties and agreements as if they're some sort of binding contract that will prevent actions by certain nations. But they're really not worth the paper that they're written on. Donald Trump withdrew, this is just a few examples of what has happened recently, Donald Trump withdrew from the agreement with Iran on the nuclear development. He withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement, and he withdrew from a nuclear missile control agreement with Russia. Now, regardless of your opinion on any of these particular activities, whether you think the U.S. should have been involved in these or not, the point is that all of these agreements were signed by the United States or a representative of the United States and committed to by previous presidents. But all it takes is a simple announcement, and you realize they don't mean anything. There's no obligation to fulfill the word of a predecessor. So how can we fix this? How can we solve the problem of distrust, greed, and sin? Paul speaks about the problem in Romans chapters 7 and 8. Let's just turn to that together. Romans chapter 7 we'll start with. And Paul speaks about how we have the desire to do wrong inside of us, and we need to fight and war against that, against that desire. We should not fight and war against other people. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21, Paul says, I find then a law that when I would do good, Evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There is a war inside of us. In Romans chapter 8, Paul describes the two sides of this war as the spiritual mind and the carnal mind. Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. 
His point here is that we can never fully get rid of the natural carnal mind, the law of sin, but if we make a conscious decision to follow after the law of God, we can develop a spiritual mind. We can see the spiritual mind that he refers to in chapter 8, correlating to chapter 7, verse 22, delighting in the law of God, and yet the carnal mind correlating to that desire to please ourselves, the law of sin as it's, term, as it's termed in Romans chapter 7. Paul reminds us just over the page in Romans 6 and verse 16 that we are servants one way or another. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? You can see he's using different terms and analogies, but it's the same point. He says in Romans 8, verse 13, if ye live after the flesh, or carnally minded, or servants of sin unto death, then ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, meaning that you're spiritually minded, that you are a servant to obedience, to righteousness, then ye shall live. But how are we to do this? How can we become servants of obedience unto righteousness? How can we delight in the law of God? How can we mortify the deeds of the body? See, it's the same thing, just phrased in different ways. Well, Psalm 119, verse 9, asks the same question. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Once we recognize our position, that we are unclean, that the heart of man is deceitful and defiling, then we can see that the only source of good is from God. And it's only by the influence of his word that we can ever hope to try to overcome the evil within us. Now, our reaction might be that surely not everyone is evil. We have a natural understanding of what we consider good and evil. Murderers, criminals, corrupt dictators, we would all agree that those are evil. We would all describe those kinds of people as evil. But there are many people in the world that are trying to improve the condition of the world for humanity. Would we say that they are evil? Would we use that term? But if we start thinking in that way, then we fall into the trap of thinking that we as humanity are the ones who decide what is good and what is evil. Turn over to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5. Because we're given a warning here. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. 
This world is full of things that people would say are good and should be tolerated, but that God has said are, in fact, evil. But people are wise in their own eyes. We can fall into that trap. We can believe that we should decide for ourselves what is right and proper. An example that we see around us is something as simple as our speech. In Colossians 3, verse 8 and 9, another example of Paul talking about mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the body, he says, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. The world says that we should have freedom of speech, that we can say anything we want, no matter how crude or no matter who it offends, or even whether it is true or false. So even those things that are done with the goal of bringing benefit to our fellow man, like ensuring freedom of speech, at the very core, if we turn away from God, if we focus our effort solely on the present things of the world, if we ignore God, if we ignore his word, then we're elevating man above God. And Paul speaks of that attitude in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. This type of attitude means that we have changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature or creation more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And if we consider the state of our world now, that, that is an apt description. Humanity worships and serves itself. Humanity at large believes that we must solve our problems on our own. Use diplomacy, use sanctions, potentially use war to fight oppression and injustice. And of course, it's based simply on what one group of humanity believes is just compared to another. We're told we need to look to other planets for resources and future homes because we're destroying this earth too much. So billions of dollars are spent on space exploration and research. But God is not worshipped. His word is not looked to for guidance. Yes, there are many religious people in the world that profess to serve God, but it's often simply a cultural way of life as opposed to a driving force of belief that motivates us to certain actions, to follow, to try to follow God's commands. As Christadelphians, we believe that there is only one way that man's problems will be solved, and that is by removing sin. And as is often said in the business world, if you want change, it has to start at the top. The executives of a business set the mandates, they set the strategy, and they're expected to lead by example. And they would direct that these actions, these behaviors are followed through by the rest of the company. So if we want to remove sin from the world, who better to lead than the only sinless man that ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary. Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. 
In Luke chapter 1, we have the words of Gabriel to Mary in verses 31 to 33. He said to Mary, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. David was the second king of the nation of Israel. And his throne, that it speaks of in verse 32, was a literal throne in Jerusalem. And so Jesus will also reign from Jerusalem as king of Israel. And his kingdom will usher in a time of peace that has not been experienced before in this world. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And Isaiah 9, verse 7 describes what his kingdom will be like. It says of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David, just as we read in Luke 1, and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And the word for order in Isaiah 9 verse 7 means to be firm, to be stable, established. This kingdom will not be moved. It will not be directed by the indecision by the contradiction and hypocrisy of the governments that we see today. It will be a kingdom of peace and justice. And that justice will be based on what God says is right, not what man thinks it should be. And although Jesus will reign from Jerusalem on David's throne as king of Israel, he will in fact rule over the whole earth. Consider the words of Daniel Uh, Daniel 2 in verse 44, the conclusion to the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a great statue representing all of the empires of the world through time. It says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, And it shall stand forever. Unlike the empires of the past that rose to power and fell to ruin and were overtaken and inhabited by others, God's kingdom will stand forever. And God has chosen his son Jesus to rule that kingdom. We read of a vision and of a fulfillment of these prophecies in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. We read there, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So what will the world be like with a perfect and righteous government led by the Lord Jesus Christ? How will he address the issues of this world? compared to organizations like the United Nations. Well, let's look again at the key strategic objectives of the United Nations. 
Firstly, they aim to protect human rights. The UN defines human rights in this way. They are rights we have simply because we exist as human beings. They are not granted by any state. These universal rights are inherent to us all, regardless of nationality, sex, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, language, or any other status. They range from the most fundamental, the right to life, to those that make life worth living, such as the rights to food, education, work, health, and liberty. Now, I don't think any of us would listen to that and say that that's a bad thing, to want to provide basic, fundamental needs like food and health to everyone, regardless of who they are, where they're from, without discrimination. But you can hear when you read that the elevation of humans over God. They, they say this is our fundamental right because we exist. While the goal is good, its motivation is self-centered. Rather, we should realize that God has created us. That is why we exist. And therefore, we should try to give glory to him and seek to follow his commandments. And his overarching commandment in relation to how we treat one another is to love our neighbor as ourselves. The UN view of rights because we exist and the command of God to love our neighbor may both show action in the same way, trying to provide for others, trying to help one another, but it is a completely different motivation. And the view of the world includes liberty as one of those basic rights. And we might agree and say, yes, humans should not be ruled over by cruel dictators, and we're certainly very thankful that we can worship God as the way that we do with freedom of religion in this country. But too often the liberty that the world seeks and promotes is a license to commit sin. People want the freedom to do whatever they want. They don't want to be told that God says that some things are wrong. And when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, there will be freedoms that are taken away. There will not be democracy anymore that so many cherish. Christ will not have to run for re-election. The world will not have a choice in who's in charge because the choices of the world lead only to sin. Christ's reign is described in Isaiah 11 verse 4 in this way. It says that with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Those that are suffering, those that today live in poverty, they will be protected, they will be fed. But the verse continues, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Psalm 72 verse four from our reading tonight repeats this. It says he shall judge the poor of the people he shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. There will be some that perhaps today feel very comfortable, proud, and they don't want to be told what to do. And they will be dealt with according to the judgment of God. What about the next initiative? Very much connected with human rights, 
to deliver humanitarian aid. This encompasses several entities within the UN with different mandates, some of which you've likely heard of, such as UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, which aims to provide protection, healthcare, education, and other benefits to children around the world, or one that we've become quite used to hearing about recently, the WHO, the World Health Organization, which has been supporting research and development related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Other work that the UN is involved with here in this area includes refugee support and also emergency responses to natural or man-made disasters. In 2020, the CERF, the Central Emergency Response Fund, distributed a record $900 million in emergency support funding. Truly a remarkable amount of money. But wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have these problems in the first place? Humanity creates most of the problems that cause refugees, poverty, even disasters and disease. And humanity can only do so much to solve them. But when Christ returns, he will bring healing to the world in so many ways. Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Those who live in fear today, those suffering from the corruption and cruelty of mankind that don't receive the aid that they need, they will have deliverance. The passage continues, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. There will be healing not only for humanity and the diseases that we face, but also healing for the earth itself. The UN found in a 2019 study that 2.2 billion people lack access to safely managed drinking water, the very necessity of life. And that's with all the projects they've been involved in. It's still a huge issue. And that brings us to the third goal, to support sustainable development and climate action. This includes helping to make people in poverty or developing countries self-sufficient by providing resources and education so that they can provide for themselves in the future. The UN says that almost 40% of the developing world was in what is considered extreme poverty 20 years ago, and that has been cut in half through their work. Just imagine if all the money spent on military and defense were instead spent on fighting poverty. They would be so much further ahead. This goal also includes research into renewable energy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and tackling climate change. Scientists tell us that, an average, that the average global temperatures have been increasing and we're close to a point of no return. But nothing is too hard for God. Again in Isaiah 35, reading from verses 1 and 2, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. 
the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. And verse 7 of Isaiah 35. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Desolate places today, deserts, areas of drought, will spring forth and blossom abundantly. Psalm 72, verse 16. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains, places where things do not normally grow. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. In that day, there will be no more famine. There will be no more drought, poverty, starvation. This world needs the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth initiative, to uphold international law. The objective, as they state, is to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained. They say international law defines the legal responsibilities of states in their conduct with each other and their treatment of individuals within state boundaries. And the main group at the head of this is the International Court of Justice, including, as you see on the screen, 15 judges elected by the UN for nine-year terms. And they are there to settle legal disputes between nations. And yet we still see injustice and corruption, even in the governments of this world that are supposed to be using these legal ways to deal with one another. In comparison, the Lord Jesus Christ will be a perfect judge, and he will actually be able to enforce his decisions. Isaiah 11 verse 3 says of the Lord Jesus, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. With righteousness shall he judge. There will be no more flouting of laws and treaties and going back on your word. These will be God's laws, not man's laws. Isaiah 2 verse 3 says that when the kingdom is established with Christ reigning from Jerusalem, he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, finally, the last initiative to look at, which is really the first and foremost reason for the creation of the United Nations, to maintain international peace and security. And they try to do this today by promoting diplomacy rather than conflict to resolve disagreements. They deploy peacekeeping forces as a sort of international police force, and they support disarmament of weapons of mass destruction and regulation of conventional weapons. They want nations to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They want them to turn military equipment into agriculture. Not literally, but that's where they want nations to focus. Things that will benefit human life, not destroy human life. And they have that quote from Isaiah chapter two. 
But if we read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4 as a whole, we'll see that it's not talking about humanity overcoming its problems in a triumph of diplomacy and self-government. It's talking about the kingdom of God with the Lord Jesus Christ as king. Isaiah 2, verse 2 to 4, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And that's because Christ will judge among the nations. Christ will rebuke many people. And that is why they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. We do look forward to a time when war shall be no more. When poverty and starvation will be just a memory when the desolate places of the earth will be restored once again to that like the Garden of Eden. But this will not happen by humanity. This will only happen when Jesus Christ returns. Psalm 72 verse 7 reads, In his days, the days of Christ's reign in God's kingdom, shall the righteous flourish an abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. We long for that day. And Jesus says in Revelation 22, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.